Welcome to another episode of The Hurt Podcast, Season 3. So the subject we're going to attempt to tackle next is such a big one that we're dividing it into two episodes to try and do justice. So we're talking about opioids, specifically the opioid epidemic. Now, there are a lot of different views on this topic, and it's an extremely challenging and nuanced discussion, so we won't be able to cover everything, but along with a brief history, we'll also be sharing our, our own perspectives on how we approach opioids as pain physicians. Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alopi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. So let's start with a little bit of history, how the opioid epidemic came to be in the United States, which we know to be the country that is most affected by opioids. We'll also discuss how this has affected public health, public perception, patients, and physicians. Next week, we'll be discussing the future of opioid prescribing in the United States, as well as advancements in non-opioid therapies. So let's get started. Now, earlier, Dr. P mentioned that the U.S. is most affected by the opioid crisis. So what do we mean by that? Well, in 2015, for the first time in over 100 years of U.S. history, life expectancy started to drop. So according to the World Bank Group, the U.S.'s average life expectancy dropped from 78.8 years of life in 2014 to 78.7 years in 2015 and then 78.5 years in 2016 and 2017. Meanwhile, in other quote-unquote first world countries, life expectancy continued to increase. Now, the last time something like this has happened in the U.S. was during the 1915 to 1918 flu epidemic. Now, obviously, all of these numbers are going to be affected for 2020 onwards because of the COVID pandemic, but let's focus on the time period before that. So here, the major player was the opioid epidemic, where drug overdose-related deaths more than tripled from the late 1990s to 2017, and specifically, opioid drug-related deaths increased six times over, nearly 500,000 deaths. So more people in the U.S. have died from opioid-related overdoses in 2017 than from HIV-AIDS during the very height of the AIDS epidemic. Now, these are pretty staggering rates. Let's talk about how opioids as pain medications even came to be in the first place. So some form of opioid being used for pain management is not a new phenomenon. Actually, before the 1800s, pain was seen as inevitable, just a result of aging or certain medical conditions. There was, of course, no regulation for the use of opioids, cocaine, or other drugs. And opioids were even prescribed for conditions like diarrhea. But with time, in 1914, the Harrison Narcotic Control Act was passed in order to get heroin abuse and morphine dependence under control, which was now growing rampant in the 1910s. So in the 1920s, patients with pain that didn't have a diagnosis at that time were basically just thought of as crazy. 
and even cancer patients until the 1950s were basically told to wean themselves off of opioids until they only had a few weeks to live. So that initial stage where opioids were commonplace and causing problems led to the pendulum swinging the other way, where even cancer patients did not have adequate access to necessary pain medication. And then came the 1980s, where the pendulum began to swing very much in the opposite direction. Right. So first in 1973, an article was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, which described a failure amongst medicine to treat patients in severe pain with adequate doses of opioids for pain control. Then in the 1980s, two more publications were released. So the first one was actually a one-paragraph letter to an editor of the New England Journal of Medicine that reported that out of 11,882 hospitalized people who were prescribed opioids, only four became addicted. Okay, but keep in mind, this was simply a letter to an editor, not a scientific study. And Dr. P and I can attest, in order for a scientific study to get published in a reputable journal, you spend months to years conducting research, compiling data, and do multiple rounds of rewrites to finally have your work and data published. And there's no guarantee that it'll ever get published after hundreds of hours of work. So this one paragraph letter to the editor really a five-sentence letter that has since been cited over 600 times, particularly by pharmaceutical companies, was one of the sources that fueled the opioid crisis. And that can be pretty frustrating. So this letter was used as scientific data that opioids don't cause addiction. But what this widely cited letter failed to mention was that these nearly 12,000 patients were all hospitalized patients, receiving very measured doses of opioids in a controlled setting, and were not continued on opioids upon hospital discharge. That situation was starkly different than the normal person using opioids in an outpatient setting, meaning outside of the hospital. A letter to the editor is also very different than a large study, such as something called a randomized control trial or a meta-analysis. This is why true scientific studies with statistics are so important. And there was one other such publication, another study that came out in 1986 advocated for the use of opioids to treat chronic pain, and not just cancer-related pain because only two of their patients became addicted. However, this study only had 38 patients to start. Again, a very small sample size, which is different than having a larger patient population to look at. These two publications especially fueled the idea that opioids can be used for the treatment of any type of chronic pain, cancer-related or not. And these speculative pieces of work drove home the point that opioids only really became addictive when used recreationally and not as medical treatment, which we now know is not true. Exactly. And this line of thought led to opioid prescriptions slowly rising over the course of the late 1980s and early 1990s. But then two major changes occurred, which really caused opioid prescriptions to spike. So in the mid-1990s, Purdue Pharma, pharmaceutical company, introduced to the market a drug called OxyContin, a slow-release formulation of the more commonly known oxycodone. So they heavily marketed this drug, citing those previous publications, those letters, that we mentioned as sources for why their drug was not addictive. They also pushed the idea that the medication was not addictive by stating that because it was an extended release formulation, it couldn't be abused to, quote-unquote, get a high. But we know that's not true. 
The drug was easily removable from its casing and able to be chewed, snorted, or even dissolved in water and injected to receive a high. And in fact, the FDA black box warning even states that patients should not crush the drug because it, released, it results in rapid release of that drug. So in a way, you can kind of think of that as being construed as a way of you know, telling you right then and there how to abuse the drug. But before we get further into discussing Purdue Pharma and OxyContin, let's talk about another major change. So while Purdue Pharma was heavily marketing and selling OxyContin, there was simultaneously a lot of scrutiny as to how pain was treated. Talk about the perfect storm. The World Health Organization discussed the undertreatment of post-operative and cancer-related pain, and multiple publications actually came out in the early 1990s, questioning why opioids were only reserved for cancer pain. So people were getting more and more interested in adequately treating chronic pain, but without the understanding of how complicated the biopsychosocial phenomenon is regarding chronic pain. And as a result, opioids became the mainstay treatment for chronic, non-malignant, otherwise non-cancer-related pain. And as this demand for opioids for the treatment of chronic pain increased, the American Pain Society launched their, quote, pain as the fifth vital sign campaign in 1995. So their intention was to be able to encourage a more standardized treatment for chronic pain, but unfortunately, it had the unintended consequence of leading to increasing opioid use, because now the primary treatment of pain was becoming opioids. Since pain was a vital sign, we had to treat the pain. But we now know that pain really can't be qualified as a vital sign, because pain is entirely subjective. It's not like a blood pressure reading or heart rate or respiratory rate, those are all objective signs, hard and indisputable numbers. Pain is what you're feeling with many different confounding factors or things that can make pain feel worse depending on the individual. And you can't really standardize a treatment for something that could be subjective. You really have to individualize a treatment regimen and assess the patient as a whole before implementing medications. Exactly. And we've come a long way in our understanding of chronic pain. But getting back to that campaign, the Veterans Health Administration also supported that campaign, and it became adopted as just standard practice. So this led to a national response. So in 2000, the Joint Commission published Standards for Pain Management and stressed the need for a quantitative measure of pain. So what does that mean? The pain score. So rating your pain on a scale of 1 to 10 and then using that rating to determine what your opioid therapy would be. But again, pain is subjective, and everyone's scale is going to be different. But now that pain was considered a fifth vital sign, and it was now required that pain be quantitatively measured, hospitals and doctors were suddenly under a lot of pressure to meet these new pain standards. And there were a lot of new Joint Commission standards to adhere to. And if the standards weren't met, and the patients complained of pain or had high pain scores, hospitals and physicians could be in trouble. So hospitals wouldn't be able to receive federal health care funds, and physicians could lose their job or face lawsuits for the undertreatment of pain. And the pharmaceutical industry capitalized on this by pushing that agenda that not prescribing opioids was inhumane and used pain consultants to talk about the safety of opioids. And we'll get back to the pharmaceutical industry in a second, but going back to the Joint Commission, so going off of what the Joint Commission was doing and with hospitals facing loss of funds and physicians facing potential lawsuits and 
you know, potential loss of jobs, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, and the Federation of State Medical Boards also then issued statements basically saying that they would be less strict on opioid prescribers, essentially making it okay for hospitals and physicians who would otherwise be, you know, pretty reluctant to prescribe opioids to be able to prescribe more freely. That pendulum that we mentioned earlier, well, now it had swung the other way. And you can see how it was the perfect interplay of good intent to treat, but with lack of knowledge and data mixed with some bad financial intent and corruption that together led to the ensuing crisis. But it didn't immediately turn bad. Initially, everything actually seemed great. Patients were getting better pain control. Studies looking at the PACU, or the post-anesthesia care unit after surgery in hospitals, showed increases in opioid treatment without increases in length of hospital stay, or an increase in nausea or vomiting, which is often a common side effect of opioids. But then, things quickly took a turn. Multiple studies and reports started showing that the incidence of over-sedation had more than doubled with this new standardized number scale, that 1 to 10 scale sort of algorithm. The Institute for Safe Medication Practices even reported the connection between increase in opioid pain management and increase in over-sedation and respiratory depression leading to death. So why wasn't anything getting done right away? It was a little too late. The climate had changed, and now there was wide access to pain treatment, and it was hard to go back. And of course, we still have to talk about the pharmaceutical companies. So yep, like Purdue Pharma. So Purdue Pharma heavily lobbied lawmakers and patient organizations and sent representatives to individual doctors, particularly in more rural areas where there were labor-intensive jobs, basically jobs with high risks of accidents and subsequent pain, um, and the pain risk there was high, and patients were mostly being seen by their family doctors who were untrained in prescribing opioids. And then they even sponsored medical education courses to push their agenda that opioids were safe and non-addictive. And honestly, at this point, it was really easy to sell that story. After all, think about where opioids were being heavily marketed, suburban and rural white communities. So there's definitely a racial turn to the strategy, right? Up until then, the unfortunate image of a quote-unquote drug addict was that of an African-American or Hispanic person who lives in a rough neighborhood. So by targeting doctors that serve and would be serving suburban white communities, you kind of take away that image and substitute one of opioid prescribing being normal and not addictive. But in truth, we know that opioids are highly addictive and can affect anyone, regardless of gender or race. And we also know that chronic opioid use can lead to not only tolerance, but also a phenomenon known as opioid-induced hyperalgesia, where you become more sensitive to pain because of the opioid. And in fact, Purdue Pharma knew that their drug OxyContin was addictive and even admitted it in a 2007 lawsuit that resulted in Purdue Pharma being fined $634.5 million. So now OxyContin wasn't the only opioid being prescribed, but it was one of the biggest that rose. Like it was one of the biggest rises and the one with the most issues. So from 1997 to 2002, OxyContin prescriptions increased from 670,000 to 6.2 million prescriptions. Opioid consumption climbed through the 2000s in the U.S., going from 
about 49,946 kilos of opiates consumed in the year 2000 to 165,525 kilos consumed in the year 2012. And then in 2002, there were more than 7.2 million prescriptions that were dispensed, and 5.8 million of those prescriptions were for OxyContin. And how did Purdue Pharma profit? From 2000 to 2001, one year, sales were $1.45 billion. And then in 2002, a year later, sales reached $1.6 billion, which is the highest in retail sales of any brand name substance. And these numbers are mind-boggling. So why OxyContin and why such a rise in prescriptions? So in addition to the heavy marketing done by Purdue Pharma, the drug OxyContin gave that same euphoria, that same high that heroin did. But because it was so much cheaper than buying heroin, it became known as a poor man's heroin. It became known on the street as hillbilly heroin, oxy, OC, oxycotton, and became one of the most highly abused drugs. At the time this was all happening, physicians were not formally trained on what's known as drug-seeking behavior, which we'll get into more in the next episode. There also wasn't a way for physicians to really track if patients were obtaining opioids from other providers or other states, which led to doctor shopping where patients essentially go from doctor to doctor and then can even go out of state to obtain their prescriptions and even essentially switch pharmacies so as not to alert anyone. Right. And the more popular this particular medication became, the more that unethical private practices began prescribing it to increase their own revenue. So these practices were known as pill mills, quote unquote pill mills, and just added to more abuse and addiction of the drug. So the more drug prescriptions they wrote and billed for, the higher the revenue of the practice and the physicians. And in fact, though not to the same extent, Canada also saw a rise in opiate prescription and sales due to the same sort of financial incentive to prescribe opioids. Now, Europe didn't really see that and, didn't, and kind of avoided the opioid crisis. And likely a big part of that is because there was no financial incentive to prescribe opioids. And I want to point out that it's not just that there were unethical practices and unethical doctors. Of course, there are some of those, and those are the you know, pill mills we're referring to. But honestly, for many doctors at that time, they just didn't know that what they were doing was wrong. They had been fooled to believe by major governing bodies, pharmaceutical companies, that they were doing the humane thing by helping people in pain. In fact, only the U.S. and New Zealand allow and even encourage pharmaceutical companies to directly advertise to consumers. I mean, how many ads do you see on TV for medications, Alpi? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is actually a large part of U.S. culture. Patients come to see their doctor and often expect to leave with the prescription for something. And not necessarily opioids, but often some sort of prescription to treat some sort of illness or condition and maybe even one that they may have seen advertised on TV. So when you have pressure from the government, the hospitals, and pharmaceutical companies, and then a patient comes to see you now requesting one of those advertised medications, it probably felt difficult to turn someone in pain away. And getting back to the rise in opioids, there was also the problem with drug diversion. In other words, obtaining medication from the physician and then reselling it. Medicaid fraud also became rampant 
where, according to studies, patients would pay $3 for a bottle of 100 tablets of 80 milligram OxyContin tablets and then sell it for $1 per milligram. So one bottle could sell for $8,000. And when all else failed, theft and illegal practices started to take place. So there was also a rise in crime with burglaries of pharmacies that were also robbed for people looking for opioids. And all of this culminated in what we began this episode with, the decrease in U.S. life expectancies and the huge rise in the tragic opioid overdose deaths. And we're still feeling the aftermath of this ongoing epidemic. But the story doesn't really end with just the early 2000s. So what happened next as the issues of addiction, death, and crime came to light? Have there been other opioid waves? What steps have been taken since then to combat the opioid crisis? And really, where do we go from here? So join us next week for part two of our episode on the U.S. opioid epidemic. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at thefemalepaindocs for more content. Send us an email at thefemalepaindocs at gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.